0: Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week my colleague Tom Kenny and myself Ronnie O'Gorman produce a page in the Galway Advertiser with Tom's photograph and a story from Galway's past. We contact each other beforehand to see what has been published that week and our podcast today is That Conversation. So what are you doing this week, Tom?
1: Well, this week uh, is the 100th anniversary to the day of the burning of the Sinn Féin Hall at the top of Prospect Hill. All right. Uh, This was a very large four-story building uh, that at the end of the 19th century uh, was actually derelict. And then the Mercy Nuns bought it, and they used it as a house to train young girls in various skills like sewing and practical skills but they ran out of money and uh, i think maybe they had staff problems as well and so it became vacant uh, but then in 1914 they had a very famous tenant in the shape of augustus john he was a very distinguished english
0: uh, painter, artist. a visual artist
1: who came who came with a very interesting reputation as well. He was a great friend of a man called Fireball McNamara, who lived in the borough near Doolan. And McNamara sailed over to Galway in his hooker quite regularly, in fact. And he brought Augustus John with him. And he was absolutely hypnotized by the city. He went so far as to rent rooms over... (laughs) what was then known as Gas Tank Flaherty's Pub, which later became known as uh, Brennan's Pub on the docks in Galway. And he wandered the streets, constantly making drawings, but he he felt the need to have a studio. So he approached the nuns, the mercy nuns, about this house. And, of course, they were um, very nervous of him and of his reputation. (laughs) So they referred him to the bishop. He met the bishop. And they came to an arrangement where he could lease the house for three years on a rent of £30 a year. And uh, uh, But it was conditional. He was not allowed to paint any nudes uh, while he was there. Quite right. Uh, which, of course, he did anyway. <clears throat> but, um, <clears throat> but he wandered the streets and particularly the docks area and the tlada. He was constantly making sketches and drawings and paintings of the people of Galway, of the stone buildings. He was fascinated by the kind of dress that the people wore, the the sort of proshkins and the shawls uh, in the cladder and the Kyanasna, the traditional kind of clothing that the men wore. And uh, he that was fine until the First World War started. And then he really? felt Ooh. that as he was, for example, making drawings down at the docks, People were eyeing him very suspiciously and regarding him as some kind of a spy. And uh, he began to get very nervous and he left. He went back to the UK, but he wasn't finished with Galway because he started working on a cartoon. It's over 40 feet long. Uh, I I don't know what height it is. I know he had to climb up a ladder to get to the higher parts of the canvas. And this was a kind of a huge collage of images of Galway as he saw it. It's apparently a magnificent thing and it is in storage in the Tate Gallery. At the moment,
0: I actually saw it, Tom, I saw it, <clears throat> I saw a very good retrospective uh, exhibition of John and his sister, uh, who was an, also uh, an outstanding artist. Yeah, a lovely and, painter. Um, yeah. Yeah. They did a wonderful exhibition of his work and that cartoon was there. And um Oh, it's a long story. I, I did actually approach them years later to try and get a, a loan of it for Galway because I thought people should see it. It included sort of a panoramic view of Galway taking in uh, taking in the, the Wolftone Bridge sweeping around the opening up to Key Street, all the way around to the Spanish Arch. And it was filled with kind of comic book figures, really, of iron men and, uh, you know, clad ladies selling fish and things like that. I didn't like the figures so much, but the the whole, you know, he tried to capture the movement of the fish market there. And uh, even in thick charcoal on paper, which it was, uh, it was very effective, very effective. You know, we should try and track that down, Tom.
1: Yes, I would love to see it. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. love to see it.
0: Now, I know a little bit about Augustus John, actually. I, I, I've i forgotten that he'd taken a room there. Uh, yes, indeed. Now, his introduction to Galway was quite interesting because he was the best man at the wedding of Robert Gregory. Robert Gregory married uh, uh, a Welsh lady, also an artist, all, they all met at Slade College of Art in London. And uh, Robert, of course, invited Augustus John over to Cool Park. And um, he famously used to climb trees the, to the highest height. And there's stories of the poor woman of the house there trying to call him down. Mr. John, come down, come down, you'll be killed. And anyway, it was time for dinner. And Lady Gregory liked people to come in with hands washed. And a clean shirt on. But uh, anyway, that was so poor woman was trying to get Augustus John to come down from the tree. But then he made friends, as you said correctly, with Fireball McNamara, uh, a man who struggled to be a poet and a philosopher and didn't succeed. And he lived uh, Uh, across the bay in the Falls Hotel it's now the Falls Hotel it was the home of the McNamara clan actually at the time Falls Hotel is a beautifully located hotel absolutely magnificent in the middle of Venice time and really is lovely but he lived there and then uh, Augustus John himself got on very well he used to come across on his boat I think it was called the Marianne Look, I don't want to take up the whole story, but you're quite right. He was told you cannot paint l- nudes in the nuns uh, building in Prospect Hill. So he used, to paint, he used to paint nudes, I understand, in the Imperial Hotel. He'd take a room there. And well, see. <laughs> yeah, there's a famous book written by one of um, McNamara's daughters, Nicolette um nicolette what's her surname she took her husband's name he married she married a well-known artist anyway the book is called two flamboyant fathers i won't go into the reason why she had two fathers but one of them was augustus john but anyway famously lady cusack smith As a young lady would go out sailing with these two wild men and they'd sail up to Invern or they'd sail up to Spiddle, certainly, and go looking for Pachin and goodness knows what. And they loved her and she loved them. And I met... Lady Cusack Smith, years and years later, well, well, a long time ago, even now, I suppose about 20 or 25 years ago in Galway, and I introduced myself to her. Of course, she looked at me with a certain amount of suspicion and I think disdain. And I said, Your Ladyship, could I ask you a personal question? Indeed, she said, did you ever pose nude for Augustus John? Well, she stood there quivering, her lips quivered, her whole body kind of shook. And she said, how dare you? How dare you ask such a personal question? How dare you? So I did what any decent person would do. I turned and ran. I was a bit of course nervous. you did. Yes, I was a bit nervous. I was a bit nervous. But he painted. That of course, answered the question. <laughs> yes, of course. He painted magnificently several pictures on the flaggy shore where they used to all arrive. um, The crowd from Slade had been over other artists from London and um, they would stay in Augustus Gregory's house there um, on the flaggy shore. And they'd have quite wild bohemian parties. They probably weren't that wild, but a lot of, you know, naked swimming and stuff like that and just. Surely having a great old time, I mean, having spent the year in London, to come to the flaggy shore for a long holiday in the summer must have been absolute bliss. Indeed. Yeah.
1: Well, when Augustus John went back to the UK from Galway, obviously this house, it was known as St. Patrick's House. It became empty again. Uh, And then Sinn Féin (laughs) took a lease out on it. And, of course, this made them and the building, indeed, a target for the authorities, for the RIC and the Black and Tans. And so 100 years ago, exactly, on this Thursday, they set fire to it. The the, Sinn Féin used to do drilling, have all kinds of exercises in there. Uh, Anyway, they set fire to it, and they did a hell of a job on it because there was just a shell left standing. But the problem was that a lot of the sparks from the fire were going across the street. And uh, the houses, most of the houses on the other side of the street were thatched. So a lot of the local population spent the night, that night, uh, throwing buckets of water up on the thatch, throwing wet cloths, et cetera, on it. And it seems to have been a very successful method because they managed to save uh, all those houses. They would have simply got up, obviously, very quickly. Uh, So what is in the paper on Thursday are two photographs. They're actually taken from the Irish Independent of that time. So they're not the sharpest in quality, but they're very good. And they tell you exactly what the story is. One is of the shell of the um, St. Patrick's House, or the Sinn Féin Hall and the other is of the buildings across the street. The Sinn Féin Hall was it was completely rebuilt then as a union hall. uh, And uh, (coughs) worked in that capacity for a very long time as well.
0: Right. Who burnt it down, did you say, Tom? The auxiliaries,
1: the Black and Tans and the RIC.
0: I see. The the
1: authorities, as they would have been known at the time. So it was all part, I mean, we were at the height of the whole war of independence at this stage in uh, March uh, 1921. So uh, it was kind of inevitable when it was functioning as a Sinn Féin hall that this was going to happen to us. Well,
0: yeah. That's that's very interesting, and you and you have the photographs. Well, that is I do indeed this week. Yeah, it couldn't be more timely, Tom. You know that couldn't. No,
1: well, it's a wonderful kind of coincidence that it happens to be. It's funny to bring in
0: Augustus John, but he was he was a a character larger than life. There's no question.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. You know,
0: and he became Mm -hmm. more so. Yes, he was a great fan of the Galway races. And um, I know my father told me they used to see him there at the races. And uh, of course, everybody would be looking at him with some awe. And that's right. Uh,
1: well, he, he was a very striking looking individual yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah I, I, I've seen some of his sketches and pictures on the flaggy shore, and really, some of them are magnificent. Yes. Partic- particularly of his wife, D'Aurelia, uh, who really was a major influence on his artistic life. But uh, he was, yes, lucky, he to was meet her. lucky to meet yeah. her. And uh, he does some beautiful sketches of her on the flaggy shore. We should actually get an exhibition of Augustus John's work, Tom. Yes, there's quite a lot of it.
1: It's very it really scattered. Uh, it is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, uh, yeah. it, Augustus John's work on Galway. That's what we should get.
0: That's what I'm saying. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know yeah. it would be very interesting. Well, I'm writing about this week again. I'm still caught up with this little Irish school out in Town Island and uh, the trouble they had in getting it rebuilt and things like that. And uh, up to now, I've been writing about, really because the information I have is more on the side of the uh, Uh, of the people trying to get an irish language school built in town and of course they neglected they they wouldn't send their children to the english-speaking national school and that school went into um, neglect and uh, almost a ruin and the authorities said to them well now people of town listen to me if you want an an irish-speaking school you'll have to pay for it yourself and you'll have to pay for the teacher And of course, I think I said it last week, they started a national campaign and got huge amounts of money, enough money not only to build a little national school, which they've done so, and uh, enough money left over to build a little library. So it was a great success. But I came across a wonderful letter, uh, hugely objecting to the, the good people of town. This was written... By a man called uh, an unusual name, actually. Uh, it was a letter in the Galway Observer. He signs a John F. S. Costello Shepherd. Did you ever hear of that name? But um, yeah, I
1: heard of John Costello. But I've heard of John Costello. the Shepherd. Costello
0: is a well-known name there. The chemist, a famous chemist shop there down in uh, William Street, I think. It was. Uh,
1: well, there was a butcher. <clears throat> was there a, a butcher, butcher. as a, Okay. Yeah, that's
0: right. Okay.
1: Which I, may account for the shepherd. Piece.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But anyway, he 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 writes an absolutely ferocious letter in praise of the poor English teacher left behind in all this fuss and excitement. That you know loses her job. She, I just the quote is here. She labored strenuously for twenty-two years, and then he gets a dig at the Islanders, removing ignorance and savagery, spreading education and religion. To this pestilential island educating and enlightening the town children eradicating vices and ill doing and undergoing much privation and misery while earning her honest living and so on and so on it's an absolutely scurrilous letter it's a terrible letter but even so the letter was published in the observer as i say and it was acknowledged and left alone nobody really attempted to answer it and they went ahead and they built the little school, which still stands to this day.
1: Indeed, it does, yeah.
0: You know it well, yeah. actually. You know yeah, well. Yeah.
1: well, it's a long time since I was on town. but I,
0: uh,
1: And it's lovely. It's a lovely part of Galway.
0: Well, ta- you're absolutely right. Looking back yeah. at Galway City, you know, is so attractive there, you know. Yeah, the, indeed. The school still stands. And in fact, <clears throat> excuse me. There's been a very interesting addition made to the school, uh, a house owned by none other than Tom Bartlett, Professor of Irish History. He was Professor of Irish History at the University of Aberdeen. He wrote <laughs> recently, or he edited the Cambridge history of Ireland, which is a very yeah. interesting series, of a very books.
1: distinguished historian. Yeah. Indeed.
0: And his wife, Rebecca, of course, we all know. I remember Rebecca well, a writer and teacher and founder of the Galway Youth Theatre. They did a brilliant <laughs> job. They have kept the school immaculately and built at the back. You can hardly see it really from the front, uh, an extension of a very fine house where they live. So it's still there. It's worth seeing because it was such a center of controversy at the time. Of course, you know, yeah, yeah, these things, yeah, these things.
1: And also, of course, a center for preserving the heritage of the whole area.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah,
1: that's very significant and important.
0: Yes. Well, it becomes in the in the summertime, it became. um, Sorry, I just have to take off that phone. In the summertime, it, it became uh, a Conor na college. Yeah. And uh, Conor na had a wonderful um, sort of series of holiday time uh, uh, schooling for teachers to learn mm-hmm. how to teach Irish effectively. And yes. this was very good. And of course, you probably know this, and I certainly know it because I've seen a photograph recently um, no better man than Eamon De Valera himself was the director of that school for three summers. Yeah, and uh, he came down there. There's a very good photograph um, in his uh, biography, which I which I will use actually next week. I think I'll use it next week. I, I have not room to use it this week, but it just became then this little centre uh, of Irish and. You know, the huge publicity that surrounded the collecting of money for the school, of course, all contributed to, um, you know, making it such a successful, uh, not a great successful school because the numbers on the island were dwindling, but certainly a very successful Naguelga college in the summertime.
1: Yeah, yeah, there was uh, a little before that time, there was uh, in Galway, there was a the uh, Conor Nigela used to do um, those kind of classes for teachers that you're talking about. Yeah, Corrigo Conor was one of the teachers, in fact, you're right? Uh, yeah. in Galway, and they called it the Kalash um, the I think it was. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. You'd have to go back to an old Galwick Hall of about 35
0: years ago. To <laughs> well, there was another one of those colleges in in Spiddle, just as you're coming right. to Spiddle on the right, uh, just yeah. above the trees. And it's an old-fashioned looking building, and it still is an old-fashioned looking building, even though I think it's a kind of a sports centre now for the GAA pitches below it. But, yeah, these colleges really flourished. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, as I just, we talked last week about the difficulty that the Irish language had because it was faced with emigration, And yes. um, we talked about, you know, that the Irish language did not continue the great, you know, the great uh, energy that it was um, connecting to at the beginning of, of the 20th century because of immigration. And sadly, you know, that event, Uh, had people saying, no, we've got to learn English, we must speak English because we're going to America, we're going to the England, and you can't, you know, you just have to have the English language. The English language, actually, Michael D. Higgins was very good on this. I think he was invited during his famous visit to the Queen of England some years ago that we all enjoyed. And, of course, the bold Michael D. carried it off supremely well. But he was invited... By the Royal Shakespeare Company down in Stratford and lucky man, I I thought I was envious when I heard, because, of course, the whole ensemble gathered there and Michael, you know, not lost for words under any uh, under, he's never lost for words on any oh. occasion and he certainly I think dazzled them with his understanding of Shakespeare and his understanding of the English language and he used a great phrase that I've heard him use before that the Irish it was an unsolicited gift the English language of which we are grateful. Indeed <laughs> I think it was unsolicited it is there Uh, It is such an international language. Um, It's also the language of science uh, throughout the world that maybe it's no harm that we speak English and Irish, hopefully, in equal measure.
1: Uh, I agree, yeah. And uh, like I said, (coughs) Irish is a very poetic and musical language. You can make love much better in Irish than you can in English.
0: Well, I've never done that, Tom. Tell me, tell me what are the, how would you advise one? What words would you advise? Learn Irish is the first thing you do. (laughs) 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 Well, could I just say another thing that I'm mentioning this week is, in fact, something that mirrors uh, Seamus O'Byrne's play on Doctor. This was the appointment of a doctor uh, to the Oranmore District back in 1904 and um, the conic champion covered the meeting anyway they they the bold bold irish men of town uh when this realized a new doctor was going to be appointed to Oranmore, which also served the island of town uh spoke to the authorities there and said look you've got to insist that this doctor speaks irish because he's coming into a you know, an Irish-speaking area, etc., etc., and that was agreed. And to ensure that <clears throat> only an Irish language uh, speaker would reply to it, the, they put the advertisement in the newspapers in Irish. So, but there were two applications. One from uh, a doctor, Tomás Brennan, who replied, of course, in Irish, and the other doctor, I don't know his name, it's not mentioned, he replied in English. So the appointments was to be before the Galway Board of Guardians and uh, the Chronicle Champion of October the 14th tells us that it was a lively meeting uh, the public gallery was full to capacity from which interruptions frequently contributed to the meeting but it appears that the chairman Mr P Cannon had no Irish whatsoever and was impatient to move things along somebody shouted Irish will be here after you and the clerk of the board, who also had no Irish, was unable to read the application uh, uh, from Dr. Brennock because he had no Irish, obviously. Mm-hmm. So a member proposed that anything written in plain English should not be read. This caused consternation in the room, shouts and cries and screams and cries of indignation. And the, the most common remark that was shouted out was, this is a an utterly anti-Irish remark. So the poor... Workhouse master who had Irish was asked to read the Irish application, which he did so, only to be interrupted by various exclamations. But comments among the crowd included, Shut your mouth there. And however, when it went to a vote, Dr. Brannock was elected by 32 votes to 27. So it was close. It was close enough, wasn't it? I know it was indeed. Despite all the uh, excitement yeah. and things like that, yeah. But anyway, Tom, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're saying because we're in we're in such an interesting time now. You know, yes. a century, a century ago, Ireland was in flames, and absolutely, um, yeah. You yeah. know, and Galway played its part. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know, there, was this, uh... there was a lot of opposition to it There was a lot of opposition to it in Galway. Um, a lot of people couldn't stand Sinn Fein, or you know, that's right, the IRA, or things like. Yes, that. Yes, there's
1: a great story about a corporation RSR, or a urban council meeting, at which Mihal Welsh, he was the man who owned the Old Malt Pub, uh, who was subsequently murdered by the Black and Tans. Yeah, but he proposed there were toll booths at the uh, on the, the main roads into Galway. So if you were bringing goods into the city, you had to pay a toll, a certain amount on them. This was kind of like the rates, I suppose, of the time as well. And uh, Nihal Welch, uh, he proposed that there should be a toll booth at the docks so that all ships coming into the docks would have to pay a toll on the goods they were bringing, including the British Navy. (laughs) And Joe Young, who was a very rabid Unionist, uh, started kind of, I don't know, certainly protesting anyway, to say that if that was the case, no naval ship would ever come into Galway docks. (laughs) I rest my case, is what Mihal well said.